Welcome to the Scriptures and Sermon podcast from St. John's Presbyterian Church in Cornwall, Ontario, Canada for Sunday, March 3rd, 2024, the third Sunday in Lent. Thank you for joining us, and we pray that you will feel God's presence wherever you are. Let us gather our hearts together in prayer for reading the Scriptures. Let us pray. God of wisdom, you speak through the law and the prophets to teach us how to live. Send us your Holy Spirit to teach us truth for our times and wisdom for our lives. Through Christ, your life-giving word. Amen. And so now I'd like to invite Laura to read this morning's scriptures. Good morning. The first reading is from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord, your God, For the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your mother and your father, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female slave, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The second reading is from the Old Testament, Psalm 19. It is a responsive reading. The words will appear before you on the screen. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours for speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes from all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, 
its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its midst. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But who can detect one's own errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The next reading is from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of the pro proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews ask for signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The final reading is from the New Testament, John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let us gather our hearts in prayer. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, now and always. Amen. Another participatory question for you. Of a show of hands, how many of you have read or at least seen the Book of Forms? A few more hands this time. Excellent. For those of you who are not seasoned Presbyterians, the Book of Forms is basically the collective polity of the Presbyterian Church in Canada, serving as the primary guide to our governance. Well, I say primary. In reality, it is rooted in the scriptures, but the standards we agree to to the logistical governance of the Presbyterian Church is found in the Book of Forms. If you want to know how elders are elected or how meetings should take place, this is the book for you. One of the courses required for the Master of Divinity program at Presbyterian College Montreal was on church polity. And of course, we had classes dedicated to learning about the Book of Forms. We had about four students in that class, and out of those four students, guess how many were excited to learn and discuss the Book of Forums? Some of you indicated zero. That's the wrong answer. There was one student. There was one student that actually had a genuine enthusiasm to dive into the Book of Forums and learn about its intricacies and how it came into being. Do you want to take a wild guess as to who that student was? It was me. Yes, it was actually me. In fact, my enthusiasm for that class had earned me some mockery. Done in jest, of course because I had an innate fascination with rules and regulations. Not the idea of actually having rules and regulations, but why they were there. This is coming from the student who ran not one but two student associations as president, and who wrote a brand new constitution from scratch for one of those associations. So you can probably clue in to figure out that I like having organization and rules and regulations to run things. Now let me be clear, it was not an obsession over the fact that there were rules, although I admit some of the rules in the Book of Forms are fascinating, but rather I had a fascination over the justification and the placement of those rules, the origin, and how those rules are applied today. We Presbyterians are famous or infamous, depending on who you're asking, for our rules and regulations which to some may seem tedious or even unnecessary. For example, section 27.8 in the Book of Forms says, no unnecessary vacant space shall be left between the minutes of sederance of the court. Isn't that riveting? We have a rule over spaces on paper. Isn't that just exciting to learn that we have regulations over the vacant space on a piece of paper? I'm judging by your silent reactions, that answer is a no. Right? Well, would it interest you to know that this regulation hasn't changed since the very first edition of the Book of Forms published back in 1879? That's right, people in the 19th century had a regulation for space on paper and it is still held to this day. Of course, that regulation was worded slightly different and under different Regulation numbers, the 1879 version says, unnecessary vacant spaces shall not be left between the minutes of sederance. It's basically the same rule. 
And there are digitized copies of previous editions available online. Have I bored you all yet? Don't worry, I'm not going to spend the remainder of this sermon advocating or demonizing the Book of Forums, as I'm sure ranting about rules and regulations is not what we're here for. We'll have enough of that at the annual meeting at the end of the service. Rather, I bring up the Book of Forums for a specific purpose in our reflections as Christians in the Lenten season. Today's scriptures reference the Ten Commandments as well as Jesus' upturning of the temple's money changers. And the Ten Commandments, much like portions of the Book of Forms, has not changed since its inception. And much like section 27.H, which sets the standards of removing unnecessary vacant spaces in minute records, some of the Ten Commandments also seem pretty redundant and pretty silly. Do we really need to be told, thou shalt not murder? Shouldn't that be kind of obvious that taking the life of someone else is pretty much a no-go? Shouldn't it be unnecessary to have to write down, do not murder people? Imagine having to write yourself a sticky note, today I must not commit murder. Much like we have to be told not to go out and play in traffic or not to touch a hot stovetop. To us, it seems pretty obvious not to do those things. But you raise the argument, oh, but young children don't know not to play in traffic or not to touch hot stovetops. They have to be taught. Well, in this way, then the commandments make sense. We use them to teach kids not to do certain things and we can just forget about it, right? But then why are we talking about it today? Why am I talking about the Ten Commandments if they're so obvious? Why write down a regulation about unnecessary spaces in court minutes if it seems so plainly obvious? Why do we write down rules at all? The answer seems pretty straightforward. We write rules to ensure that there are standards that we agree to live by. And if there's a question or an infraction, we reference those written rules and we utilize them to correct or punish offenders to either return the situation to a standard or to punish offenders. Our actions either enforce or live by the rules in which we agree to be governed by. In this case, the Ten Commandments and the rule of law established in various levels of the government here in Canada. Today's Gospel reading is another example of people doing things that they really shouldn't be doing. And on the outside, again, it seems pretty obvious. Of course, we're not going to be selling animals and exchanging currencies here in the sanctuary. Putting aside the fact of the logistical nightmare of having to sell cattle in the sanctuary, I mean, there's not a lot of room to host animals and also be pretty impractical in making a big mess. This space would normally be reserved for worshipping God in spiritual meditation. And yet... Here are these sellers in the temple disrespecting and insulting the sacredness of the space. There are people settling cattle, sheep, and doves with money changers seated at their tables conducting business as if it's a regular Thursday afternoon. Jesus comes into the temple, sees this, makes a whip out of cords, and drives the sellers out of the temple. And many of us see the sellers as simply selfish and evil people, perverting the temple to conduct business. But why are they selling things at the temple in the first place? 
Well, perhaps it was a popular temple and a lot of people would come in from all over to visit. And with all that traffic, they just couldn't resist being able to sell to potential customers to increase their livestock. Or perhaps the money changers wanted to provide foreigners with the ability to change their money into the local currency so they could spend their hard-earned earnings on a nice souvenir to take home. If you visit famous churches like St. Joseph's Oratory in Montreal or St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City, you will find no shortage of storefronts filled with various goods from holy water to rosaries, all for your convenience. But when when we look closer at these sellers, this isn't some kind of just tacky gift shop where you pick up a $50 t-shirt with a $5 design. Some places might sell that, but a lot of them really don't. I had the privilege of visiting Vatican City twice. The first time I went, I bought a rosary from a nun who was running a shop tucked away in a corner of Vatican City's immense grounds. For those who are Roman Catholic, the rosary is a set of prayers, and the physical rosary is used to count the component prayers along the beads. There's a specific way to pray using the rosary, and for those who wish to pray, that nun was helping to facilitate that prayer through the selling of rosaries. Of course, no one is forced to buy the rosary, but for those who do not have their own or for those like myself who wanted to bring back something significant to the location, she was essentially living out her calling at that moment, even if on the surface it doesn't seem like it. She was running a storefront. How is that a calling? Well, the storefront contained items which aid in the meditations and prayers of both pilgrims and visitors. In an ideal world, we wouldn't have money and cost involved in these sorts of things, but in reality, these things do cost money. And so they charge money to facilitate these things. The key difference between the case of the nun and the case of the money changers and the livestock sellers is the where and the how. Did this nun sell the rosary in the middle of St. Peter's Basilica shouting to garner attention from prayerful visitors? No. She worked in a tucked away shop, quiet and dutiful in the facilitation of making rosaries available for visitors to use and take home with them. So too were the sellers in John's gospel, doing the work that was similar to the nun. They were selling animals so that those who visited the temple could perform the traditional sacrifice to God. Instead of having to bring your own livestock home, you can buy one on site. The money changers served those who came from foreign lands, who would not have had the local currency to spend. Rather, they would bring their money with them and have it changed. These sellers were facilitating the fulfillment of a tradition, followed by many people, just as the nun was facilitating the fulfillment of a tradition followed by many people. But the difference remains in the where and the how. Jesus is not angry at the fact that they are selling animals and changing money. He's angry at the fact that here they're doing it in the temple. They were doing their part to fulfill the law, to facilitate the ability to make sacrifices available for God. They were helping people follow the sacrificial tradition. And in their minds, they thought they were doing what was right. But the way they went about doing it the way that they were helping to facilitate the following of the law was the problem. 
because they were placing themselves right in the middle where visitors would have to be gathered. And upon seeing the animals, they might think to themselves, ooh, maybe my cattle's not good enough for God. Those cattle look much better. Doesn't God deserve the best cattle? Why use your inferior cattle when we got the best cattle right here, on sale right now? When Jesus says, take these things out of here, stop making my father's house a marketplace, he is focused on the location and how they are selling, not the fact that they are selling. If they were doing it outside of the temple, maybe a little way down the road, wouldn't be a problem. In fact, they would probably be applauded by a lot of people because they were helping to facilitate sacrifices for God. But it was the seller's zeal for the facilitation of the laws of sacrifice which compelled Jesus to drive them out of the temple. It was the sellers taking advantage of the law to facilitate their own selfish desires of wealth rather than genuinely aiding visitors. Of course, some of those sellers may have had good intentions and they may even think what they were doing was right. But the zeal that they had for the law was twisted for their own purpose. Again, I stress the point that the law itself is not a bad thing. Sometimes it might seem silly or mystifying why we have such these why we have these rules in our lives. Instead, it is the way in which we implement and sometimes obsess over how those rules are being acted upon and enforced. The book of forms might seem dull and annoying and overly bureaucratic but it gives us the standards of governance which we agree upon to maintain consistency. But when we allow ourselves to become so obsessed with the maintenance of procedures and regulations, the old adage of death by committee comes to life. And we find ourselves being stubborn towards the challenges we face, not only as a congregation and a denomination, but as a global people. Sometimes our stubbornness ignores the realities of the situations that we are facing. And it ends up actively harming the very traditions and rules that we are so desperate to uphold. What's worse is when we hear stories of people using scripture to serve their own selfish interests or to justify their fears rooted in racism, bigotry, and hatred their zeal to uphold the words of scripture, usually done in a selective manner to fit their own narrative, actively hurts the very people that they should be serving. It is counter to the very nature of scripture itself. And we must ask ourselves if we too are guilty of this. Do we chain ourselves to rules and regulations and words while ignoring the spirit that the standards of God that has been set forth for us. This is something that we are called to do as Christians every day, to walk with God and reflect in the way that we are calling, that we are following our calling as servants of Christ, not only here at St. John's, but in the wider world. Are we using the rules as an excuse to justify our fears of change and challenge? Do we act like the sellers in the temple, using the rules to our own advantage and twisting it to serve our own interests? 
do we walk away from truly living out our calling to live in Christ in favor of maintaining the status quo simply because it's the way it's always been done has been the excuse we've been using for generations. This congregation is filled with so many gifted and talented individuals. Our community has endless opportunities of service. The ideas that we could come up with in this room would fill an entire book. But we really have to look within ourselves and ask, are we scared of those opportunities of service because of how intimidating following the rules can be? When we chain ourselves to the traditions that end up holding us back from serving others? Do we find ourselves rejecting ideas because things must be done a certain way? And it would simply be chaos if we tried to do things differently. Like the sellers in the temple, we facilitate the life of the church, whether through the Book of Forms and the governing structure of the Presbyterian Church in Canada, or through our various teams, committees, groups, whatever term you want to use. These things serve as a stable and consistent standard so that discussion can be held, that everyone's voice can be included, and that things have fail-safes in case something goes wrong. But do we live by those rules so religiously, full of zeal for the rules themselves, or worse, full of zeal for our self-serving interests and fear? Or does our zeal lie in Christ? Just like in 1 Corinthians, where Paul declares that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is in Christ where we find strength more reliable than anything that we have from our human hands. While we do have our rules and regulations to help us facilitate the work of the church, it is in God that our focus should be rooted. When we arrogantly think our own rules are sufficient to serve the will of God, when we selfishly use scriptures to weaponize hatred towards those who don't exactly follow our own standards of the Christian faith, the cross becomes foolish. We perish ourselves when we selfishly use the commandments and the rules we follow, whether made by our own hands or rooted in scripture. So when we enter into today's annual meeting, when we go forth from this place to live lives as followers of Christ, both in this place and in the wider community, let us be rooted in Christ. Let us take that moment to truly reflect within ourselves to find where our zeal lies. And let us reject the zeal of upholding human standards towards our neighbor. Let us reject our selfish desires. Instead, let us serve others. Let our gifts and talents serve others. With Christ acting as our spirit of compassion and love. Let us not forget the rules and laws in which we abide by. 
Instead, let us challenge ourselves in the way we uphold those laws. Christ didn't say to the sellers, stop selling animals. He said, stop making my father's house a marketplace. Let us center ourselves upon Christ's desire for his people and let the cross guide us as we worship together here in this place and as we go out in the community to serve others in a spirit of love. Let us open ourselves. Let us open this congregation, our denomination, and our fellowship to allow Christ to work his love and compassion into others. Using the rules not as an excuse or as a tool of oppression, but rather as a foundation for Christ to work in our lives and allow our gifts to manifest and perform the work that Christ calls us to do. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Scriptures and Sermon Podcast from St. John's Presbyterian Church in Cornwall, Ontario, Canada. If you haven't already, please don't forget to subscribe so you can get new episodes each week. Be sure to check out our website, stjohnscornwall.ca, where you can find links to our social media pages and more information on our ministry. Until next time, God bless.